thank you so much sir for taking out your time for the podcast it would be really great for us to get to know you as a person and get to know about your life journey so thank you so much sir for being with us the pleasure uh sir how has the lockdown been for you well, it's been a very different experience uh, uh although i must say that given the nature of the work that i do and the institution that i work for that we're a think tank and i've been working here for the last 10 years yes given the nature of the work which is mostly research Uh, and some outreach seminars uh, which is now we conduct in the form of webinars and it's a lot of work is uh, on writing papers writing reports interacting with people so although the experience itself is strange um, because a lot of activities have been curtailed as far as work is concerned i think it's going on uh, with very little disruption to the normal activity that we used to have the only difference is the medium has changed yes uh, we're having face to face interaction and face to face meetings we have webinars and virtual meetings otherwise research work continues uh, the way it used to we are writing reports we are publishing reports we are meeting people virtually we are interacting with people virtually we are conducting our stakeholder meetings uh, virtually Uh, one of the things that has been a victim of lockdown has been our primary surveys. We haven't been able to do primary surveys, uh, and as soon as the lockdown is lifted, we hope that that normal activity can resume. Because primary surveys are also a critical input into the research work that we do. Yes, so that's really great. So, sir, how was your experience moving from your hometown, Meerut? to delhi to pursue your higher studies well i'm not from meerut actually i spent a few years in meerut okay uh, uh, in school my father was in the army okay so i was born in lucknow uh, and spent initial years of my life in lucknow but given the nature of my father's job it was a transferable job so we went to several cities in india and meerut was just one of the stops Okay. I said I was born in Lucknow, and I I went to school in Lucknow, but I also went to school in a number of different uh, cities in India, including Ambala, the old camp, which is a little town in Himachal Pradesh, and then some of the big towns like Bombay, Calcutta, uh, yeah. and also in Shillong. I, I spent a couple of years in Shillong as well. The final three years of my life. as a student in school were in calcutta uh, it was still known as calcutta at that time okay. i went to i went to st javiers which is for class 10 and then i went to lamartinia for boys for class 11 and 12 and the reason i moved from st javiers to lamartinia is not because i did not like st javiers st javiers was an excellent school and i finished my class 10 from st javiers which is the icsc uh, yeah requirement for them for 11th and 12th was that i would have to appear for the madhyamik board uh, for which bengali was um, a mandatory subject okay given that i had moved to calcutta only when i was in class 10 it was not possible for me to do bengali both reading and writing and appearing in examination 
to go to a school which had uh, Hindi as an option. So I went to La Martina for boys, which was literally down the road. It was an equally good school. And I finished my ISC class 12 in Calcutta, after which I moved to Delhi. That's really great, sir. So, sir, since you have been in an all boys school, so what uh, do you think? Like, uh, is co-education better than the all boys or all girls uh, educational institutes? I think all boys or all girls institutions should be now, uh, you know, a figment of the past. Uh, we should change um, and institutions should change. I think co-education institutions are, are the way forward. We could have, you know, a few, but the mainstream should be co-education. And I think that's the way India has been moving. There are some schools and institutions that still retain their all boys or all girls character. Uh, but I think in modern 21st century, I think yes, we sir. should all move to, to education institutions. Just like in other sort of areas or facets of your life, when you're in the workplace, you're not in an all uh, boys or all girl workplace. Uh, okay. And therefore, I think that experience should also come at an earlier stage in your life. So, sir, what differences do you feel have come in the education system from your time in Delhi University as compared with the present scenario? Well, I think the major difference that I see in, in uh, Delhi University or in, in some of the other universities that uh, I know of yes, is that everything is happening sort of much earlier than it would during our time. So during our time, of course, technology was not available. Uh, yeah. And so I think that is a major change that has happened in institutions, uh, at least the nature of institutions that I went to. Technology has a big impact both in the classroom and outside the classroom. And that wasn't available to us. I think that's a, that's a big change. If I were to call it, I think it is also a disruption that has happened. Uh, in the education institution. And the other thing that I find that is happening is that apart from the fact that the world view uh, of students is much wider uh, in scope uh, and technology is one of the reasons that has happened, I think the students today are reaching out much more to the outside world than we did. Yeah. We in some sense confined to the classroom, to our textbooks, and to the interaction that we had, face-to-face -face interaction that we had amongst ourselves. But our knowledge and perceptions of the outside world with the lack of technology at that time were very limited. With the result that the worldly view of an average student today is much wider, uh, maybe it is making those uh, students more aware of what's happening around them. But they are also reaching out a lot more outside uh, mm -hmm. world. And what I have in mind here when I say that is that internships, for example, yeah. are appearing at a much earlier stage in a student's life than they were. For example, you know, internships for us were a phenomenon that happened, if at all, in the master's degree or even during a PhD degree. 
but internships never happen in school. You know, it is laughable to think of investments or internships, uh, investments and internships happening in school. Now, not only are they happening in school, they are happening in primary school or middle school, which is really very surprising. And I have spoken at many schools. In fact, I have spoken uh, at modern school. I have given a convocation address at one of the international schools in Delhi. And I find that the students, of course, the students that I've interacted with, maybe they're not a representative sample, but still, they are sort of much more aware of things around them. I mean, I couldn't imagine that we as students would be so much aware of the geopolitics, uh, aware of sustainability, of climate change, uh, of things that are happening today the awareness levels at, at school are much more today. And I say, as I keep saying, repeating myself, uh, is technology is a big factor in that. There are a lot of positives of technology. And I think there's, there are some negatives of technology, but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So students have to learn how to safeguard themselves and safeguard themselves against the technology and the adverse effects of technology. And I think, you know, it will begin to happen as yeah. Behavioral changes begin to happen uh, in students, in, in classrooms. I think that will also happen. The technology is here to stay, uh, and I would just advise students to make positive uh, benefits, to derive positive benefits from the technology, and not be predicted into the adverse consequences that technology can have. That's completely right, sir. The technological shift has been a major. Uh, thing that has come in the education system so uh, sir how was it moving abroad for pursuing your phd from the university of maryland like moving away from your country how was the experience well you know in hindsight i think going to the us for a phd degree has been a transformational experience in my life it's been sort of a game changer there have been a couple of game changers in my life and i think going to america was one of the game changers in my life, both in my life as an economist, as a teacher, as well as a person. Uh, and uh, I think I would recommend that everybody should try and get an experience outside one's comfort zone. I was very hesitant to go uh, when I actually got the admission and the, the scholarship to go to Maryland. I was very excited. Uh, in the process of application, but when I got it, I wasn't so sure of myself. Uh, but when I went there, I sort of got into uh, life as a student. It's very easy to get into uh, the groove of a life as a student in the United States, and it was more different for me. I adapted very quickly, and America is a country where you can adapt quite quickly because the day-to-day -day things in the US are taken care of so you can actually pursue what your passion is and what you really want to do. But one of the things that I learned in the United States is to take responsibility for myself and take responsibility for my actions. And that was one of the biggest changes that happened in my life, in my growth as an individual, is I began to take responsibility for my own actions. And that is something at least when I was growing up, you know, always lived with parents, even during, you know, uh, my 
days as a bachelor's or a master's student, I would always go back home and everything would be taken care of. Uh, and you didn't have to worry about being responsible. Uh, but I think the United States has taught me to be responsible and to take responsibility for one time. The other big learning for me in the United States, of course, of course, apart from the economics and apart from the great classroom interaction to some wonderful teachers, was that it was, again, an experience which is very different from the Indian experience, where yeah. you were made to learn on your own. You were guided more than spoon-fed. I think that's another uh, sort of great experience I, I had in the United States. So what, what also encouraged me to become a better uh, sort of better researcher uh, was the fact that I was made to teach uh, as a part of uh, the first in Maryland and I became a teaching assistant. And I think when you are made to teach relatively early in your graduate school day, uh, you also begin to understand the subject yeah. uh, better. So you, you can't teach unless you understand the subject really well. So I think that was also a big transformational uh, experience that I had is being able to teach and teaching uh, in the United States, not only undergraduates, but at times even graduate students. And I, I cherish that experience because that made me a, not only a better person, but I think it made me a better teacher and a better researcher. So, sir, how was your experience working as a consultant with the World Bank after you were done with your PhD? Well, the World Bank was also a, a great experience because it was a multicultural environment. And that was, you know, the first time in a workplace that I encountered a multicultural uh, environment. And it was, again, a very good learning experience. Maryland was also a multicultural uh, environment and there was a great learning experience. But uh, a school environment, a classroom environment and a workplace environment are different. And that was also, therefore, a very good experience. And there were some wonderful people that I worked with in my uh, stay in, in the World Bank. Uh, and one of the people I recall with a lot of fondness, who I worked directly with, was somebody called Michael Finger. He was an avid basketball fan in the United States. And we spent a lot of time talking about US basketball. I, myself, am a sports person. And I love sports, all manner of sports. I play and I have all manner of sports. And I really enjoyed those conversations. But I also enjoyed my conversations with him on trade and trade theory. He was uh, a walking encyclopedia on what had happened in the Uruguay round of trade negotiations uh, under the WTO and before that, the GATT. So it was great to interact with him and we did some really good projects together on the spillover benefits of trade agreements amongst countries. But I also enjoyed, as I said, a lot just conversing with him about life in America, about uh, about sport, about basketball. Yeah. And we really enjoyed those moments. We decided to come back from uh, Washington. I got married when I was in Washington. We decided to come back to India so that we could be with uh, our family. Uh, our respective families, and I'm glad we decided to come back to India after my PhD and a couple of years of experience with the World Bank, uh, and it was a great move. 
uh, I think in hindsight that we made. That's uh, really great, sir. So, uh, sir, can you throw some light upon your role as a director and chief executive of the Indian Council for Research on uh, International Economic Relations? Well, I became director in 2012, uh, September. So, very soon, next month, I will be finishing eight years. That's great. And it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, I wouldn't trade this experience with anything else in the world. It's been really fascinating. And the reason it's been fascinating is because I've been able to interact with some of the best minds in my own subject in economics, but also interact with some of the best minds in international relations, geopolitics, strategic environments. And it's really been a sort of an eye-opener of the kinds of things that happen, not only within governments in India, uh, yeah. at this, but what happens in government across the world. And let me say that if we think that India, India's political economy is unique, that Indian government and Indian politicians and bureaucrats respond differently to the incentive, let me say is absolutely not true. Bureaucrats and politicians are similar across the world. They respond okay. to incentives. Uh, they all respond uh, to what is uh, the, the demand of PR in their local context, and they make decisions that are uh, in their own interest uh, before taking decisions in the interest of, let's say, larger community or the larger international community. Every country puts its national interests ahead of its international obligations. And I think that's been a big sort of learning experience for me because when we were a student or when I assumed this position as director of Victor, we used to always think that, oh, mature Western democracies, their statesmen like behavior and their world leaders, and they always look at you know, public global interest uh, before or at least simultaneously looking at national interest. But I found, I found that that is not always the case. Uh, and we sort of criticize India and Indian yeah. uh, uh, for, you know, bureaucrats, the politicians making those decisions. So I think uh, one big learning has been that uh, you know, not only are economists similar across the world, but I think politicians and bureaucrats uh, are similar across the world and they respond similarly to different incentives and different stimuli that they make in their own personal countries. And the other uh, great thing that has happened as a director, that apart from me having interacted with some of the best minds, I think um, I've actually got to meet. Uh, by way of traveling to a number of countries in the East, in Japan, in China, uh, Singapore, and then in the West, in Europe, in the United States, meeting uh, you know wonderful people in like-minded institutions yeah. across the world and speaking there, uh, listening to people, in, engaging with them in seminars. That's been also a wonderful and fascinating experience. And it, you know, multiculturalism, mm -hmm. I think, uh, adds a lot of value. Uh, to an individual's, I, I think, uh, uh, 
capital human capital if you will Mm, that's right sir so sir since you have had the uh, 20 years of experience as a teacher so what do you think the challenges you have faced as a teacher dealing with students or like obviously it's really a challenging job being a teacher so what all challenges have you faced as, as in your experience yeah see uh, let me first say that it's been uh, an absolutely wonderful experience to be able to teach and one of the benefits that i've had teaching is that it keeps your mind active and it keeps you young in the mind and young at heart if you will as well and that uh, is something that i have always cherished i don't teach as much now given the position i am in uh, i go occasionally for a, a a guest lecture to different institutions uh but when i was teaching full time and regularly uh and with the advent of technology in the classroom one always had to be on one's toes one yeah. couldn't do things that uh were not you know accurate completely accurate because students would instantly check uh on google and their smartphone exactly that, uh, what what was being said in class was accurate or not uh so you couldn't sort of say things uh on the fly and and get away with that so which which is good in one sense if a teacher recognizes that and goes adequately prepared into the classroom uh then i think it adds uh, to the quality of the discussion in the classroom but i i find students of today as i said armed with technology i find them to be also very engaging and asking mm-hmm. uh, the right questions often and asking fundamental questions which make uh, teachers think i i have really enjoyed uh, my years as as a teacher in the classroom and it's kept me as i said it's kept me uh, you know active it's kept me uh, sort of prepared and it has also kept me young and uh, trying to understand what young people like and what they demand and what they respond to and what is it that they would like to uh, take away from the classroom that's nice sir uh, so sir which topics at large do you prefer addressing while publishing your articles in the newspapers and magazines like the indian express like i've read a lot of uh, articles uh, related to the telecom industry uh, written by you so which topics do you prefer at large to address so what excites me really even today even now as i speak to you is the subject of Uh, competition markets regulation and public choice and this is something that has grown on me since the days i was at maryland i had a fantastic teacher uh, two fantastic te- teachers in in maryland uh, both of whom uh, I, i i read a lot besides interacting with in the classroom one was mansur olson who's written a fascinating book called the logic of collective action unfortunately professor olson is no more uh, but his his classes were really very enjoyable uh, and very engaging as were my phd advisor's classes uh, who is called dennis muller he used to work in industrial organization uh, markets in public choice and i think both of these teachers had a long lasting impression left a long lasting impression in my 
sort of journey as an economist. And I continue to be fascinated uh, by these topics in this discipline of competition in markets. And I think another sort of transformational experience that I had was working in the Telecom Regulatory Authority of India yeah. uh, for several years, you know, three years full time, and then several years as an, as, as an advisor. And uh, a colleague of mine, my boss, Dr. Harshwadhan Singh, who was also there at that time, mm -hmm. uh, he was, you know, another uh, sort of mentor to me. And I learned a lot from him. And so the combination of the classroom experience in Maryland and the real life experience working in the Telecom Regulatory Authority of India in the Economics Division, along with Harsh, you know, both of those experiences combined has sort of informed what I've done as a researcher, both in career and otherwise as well. So the topic of markets, competition, regulation continue to fascinate me. And I think uh, with technology, this topic has become even more interesting yeah. and more exciting because what technology often does, uh, whether it's uh, 4G or whether it's the pending 5G, impending 5G, or whether it is the new platforms that you see uh, that are coming in, what happens uh, with this is that naturally, uh, competition becomes reduced to a few entities because growth happens naturally in platforms uh, of because of what economists call network effects and therefore this area becomes even more challenging competition is no longer viewed as a subject uh, where you should have large number of people a large number of firms competing to provide the lowest quality, sorry, the lowest price product uh, yeah. to customer. It is about how you can ensure that consumer interests are maintained even when uh, the competition in the market does not necessarily mean having a large number of players in the market. And this is a subject that is sort of attracting the attention of Nobel laureates. Uh, yeah. I can name one in, in, in France, in Toulouse. Uh, Jean Tirol has been working a lot on this in this area. And I think this is a fascinating area. And given that what 5G and IoT and driverless cars uh, and all of the new technology is going to do to us, uh, and artificial intelligence is also uh, sort of has already made a mark and will make even more of an impression in economies in the future, this area will continue to be of interest uh, to me and, and, and will sort of occupy a lot of my attention and my time as a researcher person. Uh, sir, can you tell us a bit more about the Broadband Society for Universal Access? Like, well, what is it about? So, and, and, and this is a society that was created, uh, I think, at the turn of the century. It's been around for for a while, uh, and I think the context in which it was created was that you know India had a huge digital divide, uh, and you know when mobile phones and when broadband and internet came into existence in India, naturally uh, the people who got access, the people in rural areas, uh, sorry, the people in urban areas. And people who had, uh, you know, money 
to be able to buy these services. And there was a divide that was created between the rich and the poor. There was a divide yeah. between and, and rural areas. So this divide, which is you know to be expected when a new technology mm -hmm. is in, uh, it naturally uh, sort of diffuses into areas where people are you know can afford to pay for the technology and even service providers provide the technology or provide the service in areas where they can expect to make profits and expect to make revenue so this wasn't surprising that it was happening but and the broadband society for universal access was created with the objective of trying to diffuse this technology at affordable rates into areas uh, where the technology would not reach on its own uh, in a sort of market would not uh, make this technology accessible to people who couldn't afford it mm -hmm. in rural areas. So that was the objective of the society. And I think that now has become, given that 20 years have passed since the society was established, I think on its own, the market has ensured that some of the digital divide has been addressed. But I think we still have uh, some ways to go because what happens with technology is that the old technology sort of gets replaced so, for example, 1G gets replaced by 1.5, yeah. gets replaced by 2 and 2.5 and 3 and 4 and 5G. And, you know, we are already talking about 6G. And what will happen in the course of technology is simply that, you know, access, the initial access to advanced technology would happen in richer areas and people who can afford them. So I think divides will always exist, but the nature of divides would change. And maybe, uh, you know, the benefits of the older technology would, you know, get more democratized and it would be accessible to a lot more people. So the average uh, person would have access to technology, but maybe not to the latest technology, maybe not to 5G and maybe not to 6G, but, you know, yeah. 2G and 3G, etc. would be available in rural areas and, and to people um, who have, you know, uh, lower incomes as well. And one of the fascinating things that has happened, let me say in India, uh, remaining on the subject of telecom, is that now people, you know, have access to a communication device because it serves mm -hmm. their serves their professional sort of engagement. So, um, you know, the wonderful examples that people give is that, you know, somebody who's providing services, especially during COVID. Yeah. Has an access to a mobile phone or a smartphone, it becomes easier than to reach out to your customer. It could be a, you know, electrician. It could be a plumber. It could be a repair person. Uh, it could be, you know, people selling, you know, goods, uh, agricultural products or produce, and reaching it out to to people, uh, in, to their houses, etc. So, the technology has sort of, to a large extent, has been democratized. At least the lower end of the technology has been democratized. So how was your experience working as a director at the microfinance uh, microfinance institutions network? So that was also a wonderful experience, I must say. And I learned a lot, uh, you know, working there, being a director on the MFIN network, the microfinance institutional network. I learned a lot about, you know, how loans are given about self-help groups and, you know, the nature that are given and what indebtedness happened and how people tried to sort of take advantage of, of the system. Uh, but by and large, the microfinance institution, you know, served uh, people, self-help groups, mainly. And I was fascinating, fascinated to learn that, 
the sort of default rates, especially when loans are given to women, are very, very low. And this was something one had read about. Uh, one had read about in Latin America. One had read about in Bangladesh, the great microfinance initiative uh, that had been, or the experiment that had been started by Muhammad Yunus. And then, of course, it scaled up in Bangladesh. And that was the sort of the same genesis of that idea, uh, which then led to the emergence of microfinance in India. It was not as if you know India didn't have microfinance, but at the scale, at the level at which it began to happen, you know, suddenly uh, increased uh, in India, scaled up uh, in India. And I, I, I'm very happy that I had that experience uh, because I learned uh, a lot. And of course, one had to take decisions about uh, about how the institutions should should provide loans. What is this sort of due diligence that institutions providing loans should do, and what a self-regulatory yeah. process was, and how the self-regulatory process of microfinance institutions was challenging to implement. So it's a wonderful learning experience. And the other thing that that I witnessed while I was on uh, the board of was the fact that a number of these institutions actually transformed and became small banks. Uh, for example, Bandhan, which was a microfinance institution when I started, uh, okay. as I there, were transformed and became a small bank, and, and therefore moved out of, of, of the character mm -hmm. of the microfinance institution and became a small bank. And it has a wonderful journey uh, since then. And I I'm happy to have witnessed the journey of not only Bandhan Bank, but several other institutions that moved from being microfinance institutions to being small banks. And it was, as I said, uh, a very good experience for me to be there. Uh, so, sir, you have had a, like, a very diverse career. You have been a teacher, you have been an economist, you have been a writer. So if you were to choose one role that you would like to play for the rest of your life, what would it be? You know, if, if, if I were to sort of change that question a bit and, and say that if I were to sort of rewind my life yeah. and go back several years uh, and know what I know now, what would I have become? What, what, what were my ambitions and, and, and so on? I've, so there are two professions that I'm fascinated by. Um, and, and I would sort of pick either one of them. One is to be a, a news anchor. Maybe okay. a, on television as a news anchor, uh, uh, and perhaps you know now of course you can train, you can go to you know mass communication schools, institutions. You can actually do that and train to do that. But the reason I say this is not because of what I see today around me, but I, what I used to see when I was a student in bachelor's degree. And Doordarshan News actually had some excellent news anchors. Um, and I could even name them, uh, you know, Ramu Damodaran, for instance, he, who was a great friend of my, my brother and a senior in college, uh, was somebody that uh, used to read news on Doordarshan, and it was so uncomplicated, and it was such a pleasure to hear him read the news. And there were several others, like Rini Simon, and Niti Ravindran, uh, and Salma, who used to read the Hindi news on Doordarshan. These were people... Uh, that I thought I could be. Uh, so I, mm -hmm. I had an ambition uh, to be a news anchor, not of the kind 
that you see on television today. But uh, as I'm saying, going back to the days of Doordarshan when it was the only news channel. Of course, uh, competition has brought out some wonderful things uh, in, in broadcast media. But my ambition was to be uh, a, a news anchor uh, modeled around uh, the examples that I have given you. The second uh, sort of ambition that I still nurture, but I'm afraid it is too late uh, to sort of uh, give wings to, to that is, uh, as I told you early in, my, in, in the interview, that I was born in Lucknow. Uh, yeah. And uh, one of the things about Lucknow uh, that my grandfather uh, used to do was to you hear a lot of ghazals and, and mm -hmm. a lot of shairi in those days in, in Lucknow. And, and he tells me that he even heard Begum Akhtar, uh, who I think is the greatest ghazal singer who has uh, ever sung uh, a ghazal. And he heard her live uh, and um, used to sort of be double in, in shairi. So if there was anything else that I would do today, and probably, you know, train myself to be uh, a child, but I know that that's not uh, going to happen uh, mm -hmm. now. Yeah, sort of two professions that uh, I have been fascinated by, and, and I still sort of nurture a latent ambition to give uh, instead of some to bring those out. Maybe once I retire, I will dabble more in more in those. That was really interesting to know, sir. So, um, just one last question. What is your one success mantra that you have been following throughout your journey? I think uh, uh, perseverance pays. Uh, so, you have to be at it. Everybody uh, can make it. You know, you have to be sort of persistent. And you have to keep the target, you know, in focus and persevere with it, and it will it will happen. Uh, of course, a lot of times luck plays a role, and I must say that, as I was mentioning during the course of the interview, that there have been certain transformational sort of experiences in my life that I had, and I've mentioned a couple uh, in the interview. So you know, luck plays a chance who you come into contact with, who you interact with, and how they begin to influence your life. And you all, you all develop role models uh, when yeah. you go through uh, our lives. And I have had my role models, and I've mentioned uh, these in the interview. But, you know, uh, luck has a role to play. But I think I would go with what has been said in, in, in the much-quoted uh, proverb that it's 99% you know, perspiration and 1% inspiration which is 1% could be luck, but 99% has to be your own persistence and your own perseverance. And, and of course, your passion to do something. Don't do something that you're not passionate about. And once you decide, or once you know what you're passionate about, you know, give it the whole go, the whole distance, uh, and it will bear fruit uh, for you in the future. Thank you so much, sir. The session was really insightful and I hope that people get to learn a lot from your journey. And so thank you so much, sir, for taking out your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.